Thank you, Kevin. Well, I've come to the conclusion over the years that um, blind spots develop gradually for all of us. Uh, in fact, if you're here this morning, you're visiting for the first time or maybe the second time, um, there's things that actually you can see about this church and your experience that I cannot see because I've been here almost 17 years. You may have experienced that in your business or in your family or in your school, that when you're in a friend group for a while and someone new comes in, or if you're in your business and you hire a new employee after a couple weeks or a couple months, people start to ask the question, why do we do it this way? And you never actually thought about why you did it this way because it's always the way it's been done, right? That blind spots actually develop gradually over time. And, and the ironic thing is the longer you're in a spot and the longer you see the world from your particular lens, actually the less sometimes that you can actually see. It's ironic. It's almost like uh, uh, several years ago in the New Yorker magazine, someone drew a cartoon, and here's what it is up here. I don't know if you can read the caption, so I'll read it for you. There's two clowns looking at a picture of an executive hanging on the wall, and the clowns say this, I always find paintings like this a little bit creepy. <laughs> because from their lens, everyone dresses like this. Everyone paints their face and has a little red, uh, big red um, you know, button on their nose, and everyone dresses like a clown. And those people who don't, ah, they kind of... They kind of creep me out just a little bit. And this is the way blind spots work. Like we just tend to see the world from the way that we see them. And over time, gradually, without realizing it, we begin to have a particular view of the world that we simply sometimes cannot even understand. Now, the, the reason I like this picture is that it shows two people, not just one, because here's the danger of it. Over time, if my blind spot lines up with your blind spot and we share space together, what ends up happening is what researchers call confirmation bias. That what I begin to believe is confirmed by you, and therefore I begin to see the world in the exact same way that you do, and it confirms the biases that I have. It doesn't actually reveal truth to me. And it's almost like this Venn diagram. Here's confirmation bias. That the little blue circle says there's objective facts in the world, and the maroon circle is that which confirms your belief. And because that maroon circle which confirms my beliefs is so strong, I only actually see in the objective facts world, what actually confirms my beliefs. In other words, if you ever found yourself attending a youth sports event, like take a kid's soccer game for, for a minute, and there's a, um, you know exuberant mom on the sideline, and her little son, her little daughter can do no wrong, and the ref calls a foul on them. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Anyone ever been there? He didn't do that. She wasn't offsides. That wasn't a handball. That's not a foul. Confirmation bias. My junior can't do that. The referee has these objective facts, and actually that, that was a handball, that was a foul. You're not allowed to slide tackle with your cleats up into the knees of someone else. What do you mean? It wasn't really his fault. The grass was wet. <laughs> what confirms our beliefs is what we tend to see, and we can't really see objective facts. And this is the, the reality when blind spots meet community, and people in a community share the same blind spots. They create what's called confirmation bias, which is why our social media leaders on Facebook, Instagram, and others are trying to reduce what is the echo chamber of our social media platforms. They're trying to reduce this sense of division and separation that come where we tend to believe one thing and our Instagram feeds, our Facebook feeds, our Twitter feeds reflect the same people who engage in the same way with the same things that we believe. And it can be pretty easy pretty quickly to think that the way that I see the world and the way that you see the world is the way to see the world because all the people who engage with me see the world this way. When in truth, sometimes we're actually clowns looking at a picture, not realizing what is actually on our own.
faces. This is the reality of blind spots and confirmation bias. Now, here's the truth. The truth is it doesn't, doesn't matter in a way that you have blind spots and confirmation bias. What does matter is if you know that you have them or if you don't. In other words, there's no one that I know of who can live life and not have a blind spot or not have confirmation bias. The issue is simply, do you know what you cannot see, and do you have ways to help you see it? In particular, this matters in the spiritual world, because there are times, there are times when, in, particularly in the matters of faith, when we have grown up, if you have grown up in the church, if you've grown up in the faith, there are certain things that are just assumed to be true. And when you're around people who share those same assumptions, it can be both um, validating and, and strengthening, but it can also serve to confirm some biases that we have where together we now share some blind spots that we sometimes don't even see. This morning, what Jesus does in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in is he's going to engage people who are actually incredibly religious. He's going to engage people who are who have a desire to be faithful. He's going to engage people who want to be obedient. He's going to engage people who have been the most faithful in church attendance their entire lives. And he's going to engage them as the light of the world. And he's going to take a light and shine a light on a blind spot. And he's going to do it in a creative way because sometimes you can't just show up to someone and say, here's your blind spot because we push back on that. He's going to do it by way of contrast. Now, I don't know if you know much about the drawing world or the painting world. I know next to nothing. But I do know this, that there is in good art the reality of composition. You want to have balanced composition between positive and negative spaces. And sometimes we can create an art optical illusions like this picture here. And I don't know what you see when you look at this first. Some of you might immediately see the two faces on the side. Who sees the two white faces on the side right away is the first thing that you saw. Okay, how many of you saw the vase in the middle is the first thing that you saw? Okay, right. Now some of you are like, there's a what? There's a vase? There's a vases, right? And now hopefully you're seeing it depending upon which place your eye is focusing. That the positive space is the subject of the painting and the negative space is that which complements it. Depends on how you see it. What Jesus does here in this um, story we're going to read in the Gospel of John is he kind of takes, let's say the vase is the center of the picture just for a minute. He takes the vase and he engages the vase, but what he actually is after is the faces on the side. And we're going to see that here this morning. He's going to engage a man who is blind from birth, but that isn't really the point. The point is to see the contrast. The lesson this morning is in the contrast of who he engages and who he contrasts them to. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 9. John is the fourth book in what we call the New Testament, uh, which is kind of the right two-thirds of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John was a guy who was a follower of Jesus, and he wrote an account, a history of Jesus' um, life and and. John is that story. So if you don't own a Bible, by the way, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you. We'd love to have you take that with you if you'd like. But John chapter 9 is where we find ourselves, and Jesus has just introduced himself last chapter as the light of the world, and here now he's engaging a man who's blind from birth. And so we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 9, knowing that we're first of all looking at him starting to engage an issue around blind spots, around confirmation bias, and he's doing it First of all, by looking at this man who was born blind. So, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see the bias already in their question. The assumption is there was something wrong, someone sinned, 
because God curses those who have sinned and blesses those who don't. And it's been confirmed by all of the disciples. This is what we all believe. There's already bias in this space. Verse 3. Jesus responds, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground. Just imagine that for a minute. Got it? Good. Made some mud with the saliva. How cool would that be? And put it on the man's eyes. Imagine the experience of the man born blind. All you hear is... And then the next moment you feel. Okay? Go, verse 7, Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And so the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Now, at this point, John doesn't record that the blind man expressed any faith. He just records that he did what he was told to do. He followed Jesus. So verse 8, his neighbors, those who had formerly seen him begging, asked, well, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Well, there's a discussion. So some claim that he was, and others said, no, 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 no. He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, like, hey, I'm in the room, ask me. I am the man, he says. I'm the one. But then they asked, verse 10, well, how then were your eyes open, they asked. It's a good question. I guess can't be you, because you used to be blind, now you can see. There were actually, there were no, there was no other record in antiquity of any other healings or miracles related to um, someone being blind and seeing again. So there's absolutely no context, no context for this to happen. It's almost like, imagine someone losing their right leg in a, uh, in a, in a war, and, and you've known them for, forever with the missing right leg, and then the next day you see them and their leg has grown back. And you're like, this can't be you, this has got to be somebody else, because blown off legs don't grow back. People with blindness from birth don't all of a sudden see. There's no context for this to happen. None. So he replied, well, how were my eyes open? Verse 11, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, and so I went and washed, and then I could see. Well, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. He said, in other words, they're kind of saying, listen, you didn't actually see him, did you? Are you sure it was Jesus? We need to figure out what is going on here. (laughs) He says, I don't know where he was. I didn't see where he went. Just kidding. He didn't say that. Some of you will get that a little bit later on as it slowly fills in there, okay? So this is one part of the story. This is a miracle. Jesus engages this man, and it's almost like here's the vase in the picture, But what's about to happen next are the faces on either side. Because what has to happen when there's a miracle in the midst of of the people of Israel is that they have to have the miracle confirmed by the religious leaders, just part of Old Testament law, so there's not total chaos. So when there's a miracle, they take it to uh, the Pharisees, religious leaders, to have it certified, to have it validated, to say, is this really something we can affirm, or is this a work of the devil? Basically, we need to affirm that this is good work in our midst. So verse 13, so they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Well, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's good. But others asked, and it introduces a debate, how can a sinner perform such signs? 
And so they were divided. And this is the division that goes on in the Pharisee's heart. This is the moment of the blind spot beginning to be broken up a little bit. All of a sudden, the Pharisees have a decision to make. There's rules of God that exist. There's rules of God. The rule of God is this kind of work on the Sabbath is a violation of what God would want. And others look at it and say, wait a minute. But what would the character of the God who made the rule want? Some are looking at it and say, the law is violated. The law is broken. Therefore, I don't need to care about these people. Therefore, any work that's done, even the healing of this man, this could have been done on a Tuesday. But why was it done on the Sabbath? If it were from God, he keeps his laws. This can't be from God. And others realize, wait a minute, we need to look not just at the rule of God, but the, the character of the God who makes the rules. And they're beginning to ask the question, like, is it possible? Is it possible that there's something bigger than seeing God through his rules and the law? And is it possible that we should see everything through the, the character of the God who made the rules, not just the rule itself? Big, big question. So they're confused a little bit. But they turn to the blind man, verse 7. Well, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. Oh, the man said, he's a prophet. It's not really that compelling of a statement, but the discussion continues. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say who was born blind? And how is it that he can now see? Well, we know he is our son. That's a good start, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Did you hear that little bump in the text? That was the sound of their son being thrown under the bus. Boom, boom. They don't want to engage the Pharisees on this issue. They're afraid of it because they have a lot to lose. You see that in the next verse. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents, put him under the bus, said, he is of age, ask him. They have too much to lose. If you're out of the synagogue, you're out of everything. We have too much to lose. (laughs) So a second time, they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. And he replied, this starts to get very contentious and really cool. He, He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I, what? I don't know what's going on. You're going to ask me again. You want me to tell you the truth? I don't know what's going on. That's your job to figure it out, aren't you, the Pharisees? I don't know. I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Because we still don't believe this is happening. Well, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? 
Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> this is getting good. This guy has nothing to lose. He's not like his parents, right? He's already been kicked out of the synagogue. He was never embraced by it in the first place. He's already been an outsider his whole life. He's been blind. He's been unclean. He's not in the religious system. I don't care if I'm in or not. I have nothing to lose. You're going to kick me out if I call Jesus the Messiah? Fine. Jesus the Messiah. You want to follow him too? Whatever. I've never been in, so who cares if I'm out, right? He has nothing to lose. So he just tells it like it is. If you like people like that, you'll like this man. That's what he does. I mean, he gets right after it. So verse 28, you can tell the reaction to the people who, the people who have power, the people who have uh, spiritual power and authority, they want to take their power and they want to squash the views of anyone else. Verse 28, so then they hurled insults at him, which is very mature and a good leadership principle. When you can't really get to the truth, just start yelling at people and calling them names. You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. <laughs> the man is not done. Blind man isn't done. Well, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Ooh. And the emotion dissipates a little bit. But, but, the good news is, it now begins to trend on Twitter. <laughs> this story actually takes on a life of its own after this. You don't have an emotional moment like that and a, a big scene like that without it continuing to spill over afterwards. And so, yes, people begin talking about it. What do you think about the blind man? Did you hear what he said to them inside? I can't believe it. They threw him out. Why would they throw him out? Yeah, well, he was steeped in birth. He was sinful from birth. Like, this is crazy. This is all a hoax from the beginning. I mean, there's conversations going on around this space. This is a big moment. A big moment. And Jesus finds this man. Again, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Because it looked like you just defended me in there. But I'm curious now. Now that you've done what you said, I said for you to do, I'm curious, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, verse 36, uh, Who is he, sir? <laughs> the man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. In other words, he defended someone he didn't even believe in. He just defended what happened. He said, I think I want to believe. Would you tell me who he is? Who is he? Verse 37, Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now this is the only instance in all of the New Testament of someone worshipping Jesus. It comes on the heels of this kind of healing. Of a blind man, first of all, doing what he was asked to do, and then secondarily, just defending what happened to him. Not even defending that Jesus is a Messiah, just defending this is what happened, religious leaders. And coming to see Jesus and realize this is the one who healed me, and out of a reaction, out of a reaction of gratitude, 
The only thing he could do is worship. Now think about the vase and the faces again for a minute. If the blind man is the vase, the spiritual leaders are the faces on either side. It's a lesson in contrasts. Because the contrast is those who could see really well could actually not see the Messiah at all. The one who was blind could see him and worshiped, which is what the God who has made all people wants people to do for him. So the reaction of the blind man in worship is exactly what those who could see incredibly well should have been doing in the first place. But they couldn't see because of their blind spots, which was affirmed by confirmation bias over and over and over and over and over down the years, that the most important thing about God is the rules that we keep about him and the way that our culture and subcultures are formed. This is the most important thing. Therefore, any violation of that, and I can't see God at work. So the Pharisees were still around this moment. Look what happens next. Verse 36, excuse me, verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. For judgment there, by the way, don't always link judgment to condemnation. Judgment also means a discernment of truth and falsehood. That's what is meant here. For judgment, that is for dividing truth and error, I've come into the world. To help you see what's right versus wrong. Not for condemnation. Not for condemnation. Jesus is very clear, I have not come to condemn the world. Not come to condemn. So he's come for truth and error. That's, that's what's happening. And then the Pharisees who were there with him, verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Have you ever had a question that's phrased as a question, but it's actually a statement? Um, think about it this way. If you ever, as a kid, um, tried to pull something over on your mom or dad, let's say just on your mom, and she finds out that you were trying to do whatever it was, you, you had too many cookies after dinner, you put off your homework, you cheated on something, and she says, what, do you, think, do you think I'm a fool? You think I'm an idiot? You think I'm crazy? You think I couldn't see? That is not a question. <clears throat> right? That's a statement in the form of a question. I am not a fool. I am not an idiot. I will catch on. Don't answer that question. Right? Yes is clearly the wrong answer to that question, right? And then no, like, do you think we'll no? Well, then why would you do? So there's no right answer. So sometimes people ask questions that aren't questions. They're phrased as questions, but they're actually statements. That's what the Pharisees did here, too. What do you think we're blind? What they're saying is we're not blind. And Jesus' answer is brilliant because he knows that's happening. And he says of this in verse 41, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Kind of a confusing statement. What he's saying there is... <laughs> You are, if you were blind, if you, actually, if you actually couldn't see what you were violating, then you wouldn't be guilty of the things that you're violating. But because you actually can see and you choose to violate, you are now guilty of the very things that you say you can see. It's an amazing response. Amazing response. Now, how does all this work? Here's the blind spot that I think Jesus is really picking up on. Here's the blind spot that he takes the light of the world focus on and zooms into, first of all, with the blind man, and secondarily in the study of contrast on the Pharisees. It's simply this, that these religious people saw that the rules of God, saw the rules of God as more important than the character of God. That the rules of God became more important than the character of God. It's almost as if they were looking 
that the rules of God first, and because they were so close to that, they couldn't see beyond that. They were the small little piece, and they couldn't see past that to the character of God. The rules of God became the primary thing that they saw, and they couldn't see behind that the character of God. I have done this more than once in my life. I hate to admit it. As I think back to my own life, here's where this works for me. I remember as a, as a kid in high school, growing up and thinking, man, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not doing the drugs that the other kids are doing in my school. I'm glad that I'm not in the party scene the way that they are. And my reaction to this by default was to pull back and disconnect from some kids who are like, I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm not even going to engage them. Here's what happens when I, I sense there's a rules violation of how God would really want us to live. When there's a rules violation, I say, hey, you're breaking the rules. Therefore, this is very important. Therefore, I will connect. Therefore, because you're breaking God's rules, I don't need to care about you. Right? Because you're already in God's disfavor. So why would I engage you? Because what leads me in my relationship with God sometimes is, well, the rules of God, if you break the ethical rules of God, then God already isn't pleased with you. And so the most holy thing I can do is disengage from you and be over here and separate from. And when I engage other people who can think like that, who can affirm holiness in the sense of purity, then what I get is a blind spot and confirmation bias. I get, yep, that is great. We're so glad you're standing for standards of holiness. We're so glad you're committed to purity. We're so glad that you have these commitments over and above everything else. I'm not against ethics. I'm not against purity. I am against purity and ethics that pigeonhole everyone else who doesn't share those and allows me in my heart to disconnect compassion and disconnect from the character of God who wants all people at all times, including the blind man, who their world told them, this man is steeped in sin from birth. You know anyone like that in your world? You know anyone you work with like that? You know anyone in school like that? People look at him like, stay away from him. (laughs) Stay away from her. They're nothing but bad news. I mean, God has been displeased with them from the beginning. If you engage with them, this will only happen or this will only happen. And it does not take long for those of us who have grown up in a church, those of us who should see better, who should have better vision about the character of God first, not the rules of God first, to understand the character of a God exemplified in Jesus is the one who goes to the person who everyone else says is on the outside and engages them and invites them in and doesn't get a pass, but engages and steps in. What a story in contrasts that those who could see the best the Pharisees were actually completely blind to the moment. So here's the question I have on this for me. When is the last time that I have worshipped like the blind man? When's the last time that I've worshipped like the blind man? Who didn't worship because he went to a great concert with uh, you know, great music, great stage, great presence, great ambiance, great everything. And I'm not against that. I I enjoy those moments. But I mean deeper than that. I mean different than that. When's the last time I've worshipped like the blind man? Out of a sense of gratitude, deep gratitude for what God has done for me. When's the last time I've worshipped like that blind man? 
rather than felt like the faces on the side, a coolness, a duty-drivenness, a kind of spiritual, if I'm honest, a little bit of spiritual arrogance that we are purveyors of the truth and we are um, holders of power, of what, what is right, what is wrong, that draws me to a lifeless, duty-filled obligation to Christ. When's the last time I've worshipped like the blind man? Or, here's a secondary question, does my vision keep me from it? Does my vision keep me from that? Does my vision of who God is, my vision of how God should be honored, my vision of how this world should work keep me from worshipping out of gratitude like the blind man? Now, you might also say this, Tim, that would be easy if I were healed from blindness too. (laughs) That might be easy if God healed the cancer in my family. That might be easier if God wouldn't allow my loved one to pass. That might be easier if my marriage were actually restored. I mean, if I could see a miracle, come on, I would worship like the blind man. You're asking a question that's just too hard. And I can appreciate that. But I would also ask this question. When's the last time you've considered the miracle of God at the cross to bring life where we deserve death? When's the last time you sat in the miracle of salvation? and sat at the cross and said, I deserve death for my sin, that God has somehow chosen to see fit to send his son to die in my place. What a miracle, what a ridiculous miracle that in place of the the sin and punishment that I should get, I I get grace and forgiveness and redemption? Are you kidding me? For what? For my sin, (laughs) not for my goodness. Are you kidding me? When's the last time you've been in that moment of seeing the promise of God to be present with you, to promise wisdom where you lack, to see the closeness and proximity of the Holy Spirit engaging us in all that we do on a daily basis, being a light unto our path? Or has our vision, like this study in contrast, at times, been clouded a little bit by the rules of God and by the ethics that we must follow and missed the character of the God first who loves everyone, who has done a miracle to invite any who would believe to have life eternal, to have hope eternal. When Jesus comes and shines this light of the world on your soul and mine, it is a sobering light to shine on me personally and on all of us that is the church of Christ that we would be people willing to engage even those most outside of faith, even those most in a space where others will freely dismiss, others will freely back up and say, we don't need to care because they're outside of the will of God. But Jesus says, I want you to think about it differently. I have made every person in my image and every person deserves the love, care, and character of God in front of them. So, when's the last time you have worshipped like the blind man? Or does your vision sometimes keep you from seeing the miracle and the power, the work of God to engage the people that you go to school with, the people that you work with, the people in your family, the people in your neighborhood? I pray that the blind spots that we have the confirmation bias that sometimes we share can be turned upside down by the light of the world 
seeing everybody as people whom God loves. Next week, we're going to continue in the series on Jesus as he introduces himself in one more way, using a statement, I am the gate. I'm looking forward to talking with you about that next week. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together in your word and seeing, literally, seeing how you work with people who are blind and people who should know better, people who should see and people who don't. I thank you for your incredible grace that you've given us this miracle of salvation, this miracle promise of your presence with us, that you've created us each with such beauty and strength as individuals made in your image. I pray that you would help us to sit in those things that we know to be true about you, and I pray that you would soften our hearts for those times when we have told ourselves it's okay to not care about these people I work with or these people I go to school with. It's okay to disengage from those who are outside of faith. It's okay to disengage from those outside of our religious system because they don't follow the rules anyway, and certainly they're out of your favor too. I pray that we would do as your son did, who as the light of the world came and engaged those far from you to bring light to their eyes. And I pray that where we are blind, you would give us the courage. I pray that you would give us the courage to admit that there are times when we are blind, to admit and to own it there are times we simply don't care about people we really should care about who are in our families, who are in our neighborhoods, and who are in our schools, who we work with. And I pray that you would help us with courage to own it, to repent, to engage, to care again. Thank you for the promise of salvation and the hope of eternal life. And may it always reorient us to what is true and right. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.